tucked away one of the minor prophets in uh, section probably in most of our Bibles that we're not as familiar with. Maybe we're familiar with the book of Jonah. He's another minor prophet. Um, Habakkuk probably a little bit less familiar. Habakkuk chapter 2. I'm going to read the first five verses. We're going to pray. This is our time in the service where we hear from the Word of God through the Word read and through the Word preached. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'll read it. We'll pray. We'll ask the Lord for help. And then we'll dive into the passage. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will watch and see what he will speak to me. And how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and will it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations, and he collects to himself all peoples. This is God's holy word. Let's ask him for help. O Lord God Almighty, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. It is eternally relevant. It's as relevant as if the ink just dried from the pen of your prophet Habakkuk. But Lord, we are sinful creatures and the same spirit who oversought the writing of Habakkuk and gave him this vision so many years ago, we need him to open our eyes to the truth, to see Christ more clearly, to see you more clearly. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see who you are more clearly. Give us a heart to believe. Give us wills that are ready to respond with a life of obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. One pastor asked these questions in pop quiz fashion. A little bit of Bible trivia. Are the following events good or bad? A young man is sold into slavery by his brothers. Good or bad? A man goes through great suffering so much that he calls it a thorn in the flesh. Good or bad? A young child is born blind to the grief and sorrow of his parents. Good or bad. A woman is bereaved of her husband and her two sons. Good or bad. A young man around age 33 is unjustly accused, put on trial, and publicly executed. Good or bad? 
Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll understand each of those instances are things that are recorded in the Scriptures. The man who sold into slavery by his brothers was Joseph. And we asked the question, was that good or bad? And obviously, when we ponder the reality of kidnapping and slavery and all the evils that are entailed in those two categorical sins, we have to say from one angle, that's bad. But if you're also familiar with the Scriptures, you know in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, from Joseph's own lips, he says to his brothers who did that evil to him, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You also would be familiar with the, with the Apostle Paul who spoke of this thorn in the flesh, which he also describes as a messenger of Satan. But he says God was using it to keep him humble, to keep him from puffing himself up. The baby who was born blind we see in John chapter 9 where Jesus was posed with the question by the disciples, who sinned, this man uh, or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. It was that the works of God might be manifest in him. And Jesus spit on some mud, put it in his eyes and healed him. And ultimately gave him spiritual eyes to see as the chapter unfolds. Naomi, in the book of Ruth, buried her husband, buried her two sons. But eventually, as the book of Ruth unfolds, you know that God works behind the scenes in such a glorious, magnificent way that her daughter-in-law, Ruth, winds up bearing a child by the name of Obed who winds up in the Messianic line. God working it for good. And of course, climactically, that 33-year-old who's hung on a cross Publicly executed, God was working it for good. You see, all these different examples, and I could probably come up with dozens more from the Scriptures, are examples of God working behind the scenes, His invisible hand in the midst of wickedness, evil, and suffering, His good purposes. This brings us to the prophet Habakkuk, whose name means could mean wrestle, could mean receive, which there's a kind of irony in that because he's wrestling with God and eventually he receives the truth and reality that God is God as the book unfolds. But that's not how it starts out, right? Habakkuk starts out with his lament as he's, he's looking at the wickedness of his own people, the God's covenant people, and he's crying out, God, how long? I'm, I'm crying out for you to do something and, and nothing seems to be happening. And you remember, this was probably within several years of the death of godly King Josiah. And his heart is aching as he sees the wickedness around him and he's wondering if God's doing anything. And God answers in chapter 1. God says, look, look to the north. See that military machine flexing their military muscles, ravaging these different lands. I'm going to use them to pounce upon Judah. I'm going to use the Babylonians. And then you remember Habakkuk cries out again, God, them, Really? You're going to use that wicked people, a people more wicked than us? And that brings us to chapter 2. But in the midst of this, we've been trying to instruct you that, that part of 
trusting in God in the midst of the fogginess of life, in the midst of the injustices and the trials, means laying hold of who God really is. And we we saw last time you need to lay hold of the wisdom of God, that God knows what He's doing. We are, are, are seeing things from a vantage point of ignorance. We also need to lay hold of the righteousness of God, that His eyes are too pure to look upon evil with approval, that while He may be, uh, while we live in a fallen, wicked world, that God despises the evil of this world, He, in the wonder and glory of His person, works those evil events for His good purposes. He's righteous. We also see in the midst of this that God... God is a God who's ultimately sovereign over all things. He's the one. All evil bows before His sovereign throne. He's the one who sends the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. We also see God's faithfulness. Habakkuk, in the midst of this, confesses, we will not die. God's covenant promises will not fall to the ground. And so now God is going to respond to Habakkuk's second lament, his lament that God would use this wicked people for His purposes in destroying Judah. Verse 1, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what He will speak to me, and how I may reply when I am reproved. So Habakkuk here resolves that he is going to stand and wait. Now, he has the benefit of having a personal conversation with God, right? We don't have that benefit. We can cry out to God, laments much like Habakkuk cries out, but God doesn't audibly respond. But He has given us His Word. And one of the beautiful things that we'll see as this passage unfolds that God instructs Habakkuk to write it down. Write it down. Why does he tell him to write it down? He was giving Habakkuk the answer. It was hitting his ears. He was going to know exactly what God is saying. But he tells him to write it down for you and for me. That we would hear that that God is the God who works behind the scenes good purposes. Verse 2, Then the Lord answered and said to me, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. So notice again the Lord, Yahweh, God, all capitals, L-O-R-D, He answers and says, write this down. You've been waiting for this answer. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. It's going to come. It hastens towards goal. It will not fail. And notice what he says at the end of verse 2, that one who reads it may run. What's the idea of running? It's, it's the idea of a herald running with the message. This is how, how information was communicated in the ancient world, was you would send a herald to run throughout the cities and give the message. And the message is going to come. It's going to be delivered from the king who sits upon his throne. Verse 4. 
Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk now gives a contrast. A contrast between the proud one, the proud one, namely the Chaldeans, these Babylonians who are ready to come against Judah, probably also includes the proud ones who were within Judah, who were deserving God's judgment. But in the midst of that, he contrasts it with the righteous who will live by his faith. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that this is a passage, the righteous will live by faith, that's quoted three times in the New Testament. Twice by the Apostle Paul, once in Romans chapter 1, once in Galatians chapter 3, and also the author of Hebrews quotes it. And they often quote in the context of understanding that uh, the, uh, a person is justified or declared righteous by God through faith. We'll talk more about that later. But notice again this contrast here. Verse 5. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol and he is like death never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Notice he mentions the wine of the haughty man. Babylon was notorious for its drunken feasts. In fact, we'll see that later in the book as we think about the destruction of Babylon. Then he says, he enlarges his appetite like Sheol and he is like death never satisfied. The, the, the empire of Babylon was just coming and gobbling up all these other countries. Eating them, swallowing them up. Verse 6. Will not all these take up a taunt song against him? even mockery and insinuation against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. For how long and makes himself rich with loans? Now this is the first of five different woes that we're going to see against Babylon. In all this, we see the first in verse 6, Woe to him who increases what is not his. Uh, We'll see it again in verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city. And the woe in the Old Testament uh, was the prophetic woe. Uh, The opposite of woe was blessing. Uh, And so it was God's statement of judgment, His indictment upon usually upon the nations. It's God's divine cursing. And so what God is communicating here through the prophet Habakkuk is that don't you worry. I'm going to bring my hammer of justice against Babylon. You're concerned that I'm using Babylon as an instrument of justice against against Israel, against Judah. Don't you worry. They will have their day in court. And the first of these woes is a woe to Babylon for their greediness. 
their greediness. We see here, will not all these take up a taunt song against him? Even mockery and insinuation against him? Woe to him who increases what is not his. They're gathering up what is not theirs. But notice this statement in verse 6. They're going to all these, refers to all the different nations, all the different nations that have been bullying Babylon. They are going to take up a taunt song against Babylon. What is meant by this? Well, they're going to mock Babylon when judgment comes upon her. Imagine with me, you're a Cleveland Indians baseball fan, and all year long, the New York Yankees ace has been beating up on the Indians. They're unable to score any runs. The Indians make it to the playoffs to go face-to-face against the Yankees. And of course, they have this starting pitcher in the seventh game of this playoff series. And he's owning the Indians the whole game. But then it gets to the seventh inning. And the Indians bat around the lineup, score seven runs. And finally, the manager of the Yankees comes out and to the pitcher's mound takes the ball off of that pitcher. What's the crowd doing? Well, if you've ever been to a professional baseball game, they're probably doing sha-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, hey, 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 goodbye. What is that? That's a taunt song. That's mockery. That's what these nations are doing here with Babylon as they see Babylon get what it deserves because of all these years that it's been pouncing upon these other nations, now they get what is due them. Also verse 7, Will not your creditors rise up and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them because you have, you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Notice the language here. He says, your creditors will rise up suddenly. And he's, he's giving the imagery here of, you know, Babylon, when, when they would come and destroy a nation, they would loot it, they would plunder it, they would take anything that was of value. That was often the way in which militaries would pay their soldiers. And so, the prophet Habakkuk here, with this vision, God is saying, he's saying, it's, they're like creditors. You, you've taken from them. It's like you're borrowing and now it's payday. Now the bill collectors have come in the judgment of God. He's likening the judgment to God kind of collecting His debt now. There's a Southern Baptist preacher who preached a sermon. It's a famous sermon. It's called Payday Someday. It's on reality of God's coming judgment. Well, the Babylonians were about to experience payday someday. 
He gives another woe for their bullying. Verses 9-11. through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer it from the framework. What is he saying here? Is he, he's saying you, you, you've, you've plundered, you've bullied these other countries and you've come and taken their stuff and, and you've built your own house and you think that it's a secure and safe dwelling. But the stones in those walls are going to cry out against you. Now one of the things that Babylon was famous for was its seemingly impenetrable walls. These seemingly impenetrable walls because of cities in the ancient world, the the way in which you were uh, an encroaching army would conquer a city would be to lay a siege against that city. A siege so that nothing goes in and nothing comes out so that eventually those inside of it are starving, right? And so they need to uh, open the door. They need to get out. They're going to die. And that... Encroaching army just comes in and conquers the city. Well, Babylon geniusly had a way around that. They shunted the Euphrates River to go right underneath the city walls so that they would have water inside the city, so that they could have water for their gardens, so that they could have all the, uh, the food and nourishment and water that they needed so that they could last for, for years on end inside those seemingly safe walls as invading armies would they would starve to death outside those walls before Babylon starved to death but it wasn't going to be like that forever now God speaks another woe to murderous Babylon verse 12 through 14 Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts the peoples that toil for fire and the nations grow weary for nothing? Babylon built their empire on bloodshed and violence. They were brutal. Brutal. We get a picture of that. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago when, when they came and uh, sacked Jerusalem. Zedekiah, who was the reigning king at that point, remember what they did? They murdered his sons before his very eyes and then they plucked out his eyeballs. I mean, it was that kind of intimidating war tactics that they used to keep people in fear. And God saying that the Lord of hosts sees it. Yahweh Sabaoth, the commander of the Lord's armies, that the people's toil for fire, all this labor, all this military expedition, all this conquering, it's, it's doing so for fire, namely for them to be sacrificed on the altar of God's judgment. But then this verse four, 14 For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. 
There's coming a day in which the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That the whole world will not bow to the Babylonian god Marduk, but the whole world will one day bow to Yahweh. That there will be an acknowledgement of the glory of Yahweh blanketing the earth. The Babylonians won't win, ultimately. Then he speaks of a woe to drunken Babylon, verse 15 to 17. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom, even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup is in the Lord Yahweh's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory for the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all of its inhabitants. This section describes Babylon involved in almost a kind of date rape situation where they make their neighbors drunken so that they can abuse them, but then they themselves are drunken and exposing their own nakedness. And it's reminiscent almost of of, uh, Genesis chapter 9 after Noah gets off the ark and he engages in, in drinking too much wine and exposes himself. He's saying this kind of debauchery is ultimately going to lead to your own disgrace and shame. He speaks of the cup that is in Yahweh's right hand. They've been drinking the cup of wine, but God's going to hand to them the cup of His wrath and judgment. Then he gives this last final woe in verses 18 to 20. A woe upon idolatrous Babylon. This is, this is the root of it all, really. You see, people's behaviors, people's morals flow out of what they believe. Uh, behavior always follows belief. Duty always follows doctrine. And if your doctrine, if your beliefs are idolatrous, as we're going to see with Babylon, then your behavior is going to be wickedness. Verse 18, what prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood, for it trusts, for its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Like the prophets often do, they are making sport of, they're mocking the idolatry of the pagan nations. The way in which someone will take a piece of wood and carve that piece of wood as a representative of the god Marduk or some other god and then they'll bow down to this god and this god that is mute, this god that is idle and doesn't do anything. They're the creator and yet they bow down to it. Verse 19, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! To a mute stone, arise, and that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside of it. And then these sobering words, verse 20. But the Lord, Yahweh, is in His holy temple. 
Let all the earth be silent before him. Let all the earth close their mouth before Yahweh God of Israel because he sits enthroned in his temple and he is the king. So what's what's going on here? What's going on in this chapter? All this poetic imagery, some of it graphic. I mean, you know, some of you may be offended by some of the things I've read, but I didn't write it. God wrote it through the pen of Habakkuk. But what God is communicating to the prophet here is is quite plain. Namely, your heart is heavy and grieved over the reality that I'm using the Babylonians as my instrument of judgment against Israel. But don't worry, they will have their day in court. You just need to trust me, Habakkuk. You need to trust me. You need to lean upon the reality that I got this covered. To use the modern vernacular, Habakkuk, just stay in your lane. Stay in your lane and trust me. I got this covered. There's a similar passage in Isaiah chapter 10. The prophet Isaiah is speaking of Assyria, who is God's instrument of judgment for the northern part of Israel uh, some years prior. In in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 through 7, here's another woe. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and and, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. Notice the language. He's... He's pronouncing judgment upon Assyria, which assumes they're responsible, right? And then he calls Assyria the rod of my anger. They're my beating stick. And the staff in the hands of my indignation. They're my beating stick of my wrath and indignation. Verse 6, it send, uh, I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Verse 7, yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. You see what God is saying. It's similar to what He's saying with Assyria that He's saying with Babylon. Namely, they're an instrument in My hand. They will be judged. But their purpose, and one of the reasons for their judgment, is because their motives are not saying, God, I would like to be uh, an instrument of Your righteous judgment against Your people. Will You? We would like to serve You, Yahweh God. That's not what they're saying. No. They're in all their wicked motives, just trouncing upon people, just flexing their military muscles. And God, in the wonder of His wisdom and sovereignty and righteousness, uses the wicked choices of men for His sovereign purposes. Just like that clock we talked about last week, right? The hands keep going around, but those gears behind the clock, they may be running contrary to God's character, but the hand keeps going just as He purposed. And so friends, this is huge. This is huge. Because we too live in a world of wickedness and injustice. 
And while there may be some measure of means that we can try to bring about to, to have some semblance of justice in this world, and when we can, we should try that. But ultimate justice is reserved for another day. And so here's my first takeaway that I I want you to take home with you is to trust that God's justice delayed is not justice denied. To trust it. To believe it. This is what we see all throughout this passage. God will bring His justice. He's telling Habakkuk, you just need to trust Me. And He does bring His justice. If you were to read through the book of Daniel, you would come to Daniel chapter 5 and you would find Belshazzar there with his friends behind the Babylonian walls kicking it. Party hardy. They're all drinking heavy, engaged in all kind of wickedness and then, and then they do a dastardly deed that provokes Yahweh. They say, Hey, weren't those there's... Remember those holy dishes that we plundered from the temple in Jerusalem? Bring out those holy dishes and we'll use them for our party. And do you remember all of a sudden a hand appears, a giant hand that begins writing, Meeny, meeny, tikkul, you parson. And you all know what that means, right? No. Meanie, you've been weighed and found wanting in the balances. God has weighed Babylon and you're lacking. Tico, you parson, God is going to divide this nation. God is going to destroy. And you know what was going on outside those city walls? Daniel doesn't record it, but we know from secular history and writings what was going on outside of those Babylonian walls was the Medo-Persians were outside. Remember I said there was that, that river that flowed underneath? Well, they figured out a way to do some earth moving and to shunt that river so that the water went down so that Medo-Persian soldiers could go underneath that wall. And as that handwriting was, on, was going on the wall, those Persian soldiers were coming in quietly, quietly underneath the walls. By the end of the day, Babylon would be conquered. This was God's judgment. He brought this mighty empire to its knees. Well, we may not be facing Babylon, but again, the injustices that we see in this world, you may be going through a time, a horrible time of injustice, a trial, a suffering that you can't explain. Your heart cries out over and over, God, how long are you going to answer? Are you going to answer my heart cry? Maybe you work hard in your workplace and you get fired or passed over for a job promotion. Maybe you or a loved one has been 
physically abused or sexually abused. Perhaps you look around you and you see evil people seem to be as fertile as rabbits, but you've longed to have a child and have only experienced infertility. Someone steals your belongings and there's no way of replacing them. Or just you look at society at large and everything seems to be turned on its head. The injustices around us. You need to trust that justice delayed is not justice denied. God's wheels of justice may grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. And sometimes, friends, we read passages like this and think, oh, you know, this seems so brutal, right? God's going to judge. But friends, part of being human and made in the image of God is a recognition that our hearts cry for justice. Our hearts cry out when wrong is done. I mean, evidence of that. I remember some years ago being in the movie theater, watching the gladiator, and there's that scene at the end where the bad guy who's murdered this guy's family eventually gets killed, and and the whole movie theater erupted in cheers. Why? It felt... No... Justice had been served. This guy got what he deserved. That's why so many of so many movie themes are are, are based upon revenge and, and people getting what they deserve and, and it sells, right? Because we want justice. And of course we live in a world today where so much of that is skewed as people have moved away from God's standard of what's right and wrong. And so what's, what's per- portrayed sometimes as a just matter is actually an injustice and it's all twisted and turned. But nonetheless, there's that heart cry in the human heart that longs for justice. The child of God has to trust that God will bring His justice in due time. Remember Asaph, the psalmist, he struggled with the reality of the prosperity of the wicked and the downtroddenness of the righteous. And you remember there's a, his heart cries in, in, in Psalm 73, verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. I have washed my hands in innocence. I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I said I will speak thus, behold, I have betrayed, would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, this was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. He began to begin thinking truthfully and biblically after he encountered God in the temple. And then in verse 18, this is the first thing that comes to light. Surely you have, I'm sorry, then I perceive their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. In other words, these wicked that he had been coveting, he began to see that God had them in the crosshairs. 
That there was a bounty placed upon their head for him to covet and want to be in their sandals was for him to want to be under the judgment of God. You cast them down to destruction. Verse 19, they are destroyed as in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden tears. Asaph began to understand. He began to see things with a long view. And this is what Habakkuk is beginning to understand. God will have His day of judgment. And friends, can I suggest to you something? This actually liberates you. Now again, while on the one hand, when we see wrongs and injustices in this world, we can try to raise up our voice. We can try to go through proper channels, whether it's through political means or try to inform people's minds about these things, to try to persuade people. But... But the reality is, is until Jesus comes back, there's still going to be injustices in this world. And often it's so overwhelming that for us to be able to fix them would be merely impossible. But the frustration is still there. We want justice. When we ponder the reality of the millions of unborn children that are murdered in this country and across this world, our hearts cry out, long for justice. When we see the downward spiral of this republic and, and running it into a gr- in the ground, our hearts cry out for justice. But you see, when you trust that God will bring about justice in due time, it actually liberates you to love people. This is what the Apostle Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 12. He says in Romans chapter 12, he says, Never repay back evil for evil. But then he says, Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. He says, Don't don't try to take revenge yourself. But leave room for God's judgment. And then after that he says, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In other words, when you understand that, okay, there's this injustice in this world, my heart cries out, I want it to be righted, I I want people to be punished, I want people to see, I want them to understand. Why do they keep telling me to put a mask on? (laughs) this is America for crying out loud and you want to just snap back say God you're the judge as we see the erosion of our freedoms religious freedom freedom of speech all of that God is the judge. Now I'm free. I don't have to bring, I don't have to right all the wrongs of this world. I can love this poor soul in front of me who may be lost. You know, I mentioned Corey Ten Boom last week in the hiding place. She was the one who was in the concentration camp with the fleas. Well, there's this theme that runs through the book with her and her sister, her older spiritual mentor, her sister Betsy, where over and over Betsy will speak of, oh, 
she'll, she'll speak of how she pities them. And as you're reading through the book, you're, you're thinking, she's talking the them, the pronoun them refers to the Jews, right? I mean, that's, those are the people that she's helping over and over throughout the book. They're, they're hiding them in, the, in their hiding place in the home. They're the, the ones that they've risked their lives and been imprisoned for. But as the book unfolds, it becomes evident that Betsy, when she says that she had compassion and pitied them, was not talking about the Jews. She was talking about the Nazis. You see, but you can only pity them if you realize the long view. God had them in the crosshairs. And they were foolishly engaged in wicked and evil deeds that God would bring them to account. And unless they repented and trusted in Christ, they would suffer an eternity in hell under the hand of God's judgment. You can only pity somebody who you realize... Although they may be engaged in evil deeds, although they may be lying and manipulating in all kinds of evil, they are under the hand of God's judgment. And were it not for God's grace, that's where you would be too. Friend, you need to trust that God's justice delayed is not God's justice denied. It will come about and that will free you and liberate you to live in kindness and, and dare I say, even have joy in the midst of a world turned upside down. But secondly, the trust that God's paradise delayed is not paradise denied. We glossed over, but verse 14, did you notice it there? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, now the statement is in the context of judgment. That Yahweh's glory and the acknowledgement, the knowledge of His glory is going to blanket the earth as the water blankets the sea. And so that... The enemy will not win in the end, but, but here is this beautiful, glorious statement, this nugget of truth that one day planet earth and the new heavens and the new earth will be blanketed with the knowledge of the glory of God. The prophets often will speak of this future date. We see it in Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 9. Probably a passage that you're maybe a little bit more familiar with. It says, Then a shoot will rise from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And then he goes on. And, and, and obviously this is fulfilled. It's inaugurated with the coming of Christ. But then as the passage goes on, I think it becomes obvious that this is, this is not yet fi- fulfilled today. 
Because he goes on to say in verse 6, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. You let your kids play with wolves? You let your kids pet leopards? I don't think so. It's coming a day when the curse will be reversed so much that even the created order will be back in order. That one of the results of man's rebellion is the twisting and corruption of the creation of the animal world. Verse 7. And the cow will also bear and will graze and the young lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Then here it is. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That as this world is, is not how this world will always be. That there's coming a day when God says that I will make a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And Revelation 21, 3 and 4, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The former things, all the things that accompanied this cursed earth because of man's rebellion against the Creator, it will pass away. This is what God is communicating to Habakkuk. This, my friends, is what will give you hope and joy as you lean into it. Lean into the reality that paradise delayed is not paradise denied. Because we're not living in the new heavens and the new earth doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It will happen. If you believe something better is on the horizon, then you can endure whatever difficulties, injustices, sufferings you see here and now. If you ever work out, one of the best parts of working out is being done. <laughs> but what motivates you in the midst of it, when, when if you're on a run or you're on a machine or something like knowing that there's a destination here. There's an end to this bike ride. There's an end to this jog. There's an end to this workout. There's an end to this world as we know it. And the best is yet to come. You may remember that old TV series, MASH. The setting of it is during the Korean War. And one of the characters named B.J. Honeycutt. He 
doesn't give in to the temptations of the war all around him based upon this statement, this quote that he gives. I live in an insane world where nothing makes sense. Everyone around me lives for the now because there may be no tomorrow. But have to live, but I have to live for tomorrow because for me there is no now. And for him, his tomorrow was the hope to be with his family again. The hope for the believer is to be with our eternal family. This also is the testimony of Asaph. Remember, I mentioned he came into the sanctuary of the Lord and then he perceived their end. Well, as the psalm goes on, he also perceives his own destiny. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. I have taken, you have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are my strength and my portion forever. That was the testimony of Asaph. He began to see clearly when he saw that ultimately paradise awaited him. That while the wicked prospered in this world, he could have joy and hope in this world as he looked towards the next world. Friend, where are you at in your struggle this morning? Amidst the injustices, amidst the evil, amidst the suffering of this world, are you beat down, discouraged? Can I suggest that maybe you're only seeing the problem in and of itself? You're not trusting in God's ultimate justice. You're not trusting God's ultimate eternity that you have promised with you in Christ. This is something that is promised to those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the fascinating thing is we kind of glossed over it, but in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 4. He says, The righteous will live by his faith. And when we read that, we wouldn't read it as, you know, a, a normal passage where we would explain the gospel from. And yet when we come to the New Testament, the As I mentioned, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 3, the author of Hebrews also quotes it in the context of the necessity of faith. The necessity of faith. And and you think, well, what's the connection here? And, And I think the connection is, you see, the same trust in the Lord where you have to depend upon the reality that God is working His good purposes behind the scenes is the same faith that is necessary to trust in the Gospel. To trust in Christ. I mean, because, again, going back to the cross. Horrible injustice. Horrible evil. And yet God was working the greatest good behind the scenes. And in this passage, it speaks 
severely of God's justice. Did, did you notice that in these passages? Did you notice in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 16, speaking of Babylon, you will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. Here God is saying, my cup, you've been drinking the cup of wine, I'm going to place in your hand the cup of my anger. And then the last verse in this chapter, in verse 20, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. That reminds me of Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Let all the world close its mouth before Him and be held accountable before God. It's a statement of God's judgment. You see, the reality is that those same guns of justice that were aimed at ancient Babylon, they're aimed at us. And the same cup that God says, I'm going to hand you, Babylon, the cup of my wrath, is the same cup that we deserve to drink. And yet, you know that in the Gospel, it's the Lord Jesus who anticipates the cup as He's in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus winds up drinking the cup of the Father's wrath so that we would not have to. And the righteous will live by faith. The same faith that has to trust God's good purposes amidst injustices and evil is the same faith that has to trust in the Lord Jesus that in that great evil that He endured, God was working His good purposes and placing your sin upon His back and Him drinking the cup of the Father's wrath for you. And the righteous will live by faith. So friend, do you believe that? Is that your hope? Is that what you're resting in and leaning into this morning for your eternity? If not, I summon you to go to the Lord Christ. He is a kind King. Go to Him confessing, holding your hand over your mouth. Nothing to object before Him. Stop making excuses for your own sin. Own up to it. And trust wholly in what Jesus did upon the cross. And then you will be declared righteous before Him. That's the good news of the Gospel. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You for this message that Habakkuk brings to us. Lord, help us in the midst of the turmoil of this world to lean into Your eternal justice and Your eternal promise of paradise that's found in You. Forgive us for being so nearsighted, so fixated upon the here and now, 
grant us joy and hope in You and motivate us to reach out and love even to those who are enemies of Yours. May we not be like Jonah running in the opposite direction, but may we be freed up and liberated to if our enemy is hungry to give him something to eat, he's thirsty to give him something to drink. In Jesus' name.